to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm speaking with Jamie Poole, who is a creative technologist in advertising and is an Australian resident in London. Jamie is a survivor, a cardiac arrest survivor, and you're 31 years old, I believe, and you had your first experience of this wonderful life that is life after cardiac arrest about 10 years ago. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, back when I was uh, 20. Dim and distant days, eh? (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing at the moment, Jamie? Yeah, no, I think um, I'm I'm being treated very well by um, Dr. Varnava and the team at Hammersmith Hospital, and I think they've got my condition sort of well managed now. And the last time I had an episode or an appropriate shock was uh, two and a half years ago now. uh, sort of at a at a heart transplant uh, assessment up in Hatfield Hospital, and since then uh, I think I've 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 kind of probably self medicating a little bit and just I've reduced my activity a lot, but um, otherwise, yeah, no, back to normal. You 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 mentioned uh, that you had a condition, but you didn't actually say what it is. Can you tell us what condition you have and tell us a little bit about that condition? Yeah, so I have a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. From my sort of general understanding, it's a, it's a thickening of the, the heart muscle and that sort of causes the heart to struggle to effectively beat sometimes. And f- I'm not sure if we have figured out exactly yet why, though the my particular case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is leading to so many ventricular fibrillation episodes. So, uh, you know, I've had uh, eight additional episodes of EF since my original out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And I, I'm not sure if we know yet why I, my hokum has led to those to those episodes. You, you called it hokum, is it? Hokum or HCM? Um, I, yeah, I guess. Uh, I think there, might, there is. I think there might be two technically different conditions, but I've heard it sort of spoken to me as hokum before. Because um, I think that's H, H-O-C-M. Um, whereas there's also just HCM, um, so I'm not really too sure on what the actual medical difference is between those. But I, I, I use hokum generally. Is is this a common condition? Do you know how many people are affected by this? I think it, it, it's relatively common, actually. I think it's about one in five hundred um, in the UK will have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Common enough, even. I mean, I don't know if anyone's seen or watches The Big Bang Theory, the American TV show. But one of their characters on there, Sheldon, he just sort of very off the cuff. You know, they're talking about, oh, you just have a big heart. And he's like, no, that would be, you know, I have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And so it just sort of made me think, you know, well, it's actually, it, it's common enough, I guess, for like Hollywood writers to understand and put it in a in a in a show as a joke so um, <laughs> it's, it's definitely i don't think it's a rare condition but i think the severity of my situation is is quite rare i think most people can actually live their entire lives without ever having any symptoms or complications at all you know they may not even be aware they have it but you know unfortunately for me it's decided to play up <laughs> for the last 10 years <laughs> I think you said that you well you had it your first SCA at the age of twenty. So you had twenty years. Were you symptom free during all that time? Yeah, a... Definitely, 
yeah. It was, um, I mean, even to the point where this still sort of just, you know, blows my mind, but my first preference for a career after uh, after high school was to join the Air Force. And so I joined the Australian Royal Australian Air Force. I went through all the uh, the studies and testing to become a, an officer, which involves going to um, the university college. And I even passed the medical um, with no 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 sort of notes or anything so uh, apparently it didn't appear in the medical and and my mum is a nurse so she always as a kid used to get me sort of regularly uh, re- regular ECGs and and sort of checked up by her team at the hospital and uh, I think there was one time there was a mention of a slight murmur but they that that's as far as that conversation went they said oh you know they didn't know if it was a murmur or not and I think once they might have treated me for asthma, but I don't have asthma, so that that breathlessness might have been attributed. But again, they nobody ever linked it to sort of heart problems while I was growing up. What are the typical symptoms that people should watch out for? Um, to be to be honest, I'm not too sure. I think I, again, I think definitely a cardiologist. Uh, just going and see a cardiologist in general will probably be the best way to to tell but i guess from my experience you know definitely if we had checked out that murmur probably a little bit more they might have been able to dig a bit deeper that i think was probably the first indication as a child that something might have been up um, whether or not it's even possible to go from a to sort of leap from having a murmur to a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy i'm not sure but yeah i guess i i honestly didn't really have any symptoms until i was 20 you know i it never even crossed my mind that I would have had a heart, like I would have had a heart condition. Not that I was, you know, I was playing cricket, I was playing soccer, I was playing tennis almost semi-professionally. You know, I was quite active as a, as a teen, um, you know, and quite sort of, you know, as a, as a normal teenager going out, drinking big, you know, 24-hour all-nighters, you know, and no, no issues at all. And then just suddenly out of the blue, walking to the train station one day, apparently that was too much. So I'm not <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, I don't even know how to explain what, what the symptoms would be like. So just it, it's, it was so random for me when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that brings me to um, sort of the first introduction I had of you, or you obviously joined the group a, a number of years ago, but you, you wrote a, a blog post that we um, added to our first volume of the Life After Cardiac Arrest book, which is the eight times I died, and, and you touched on it there, the first time when you had your um, sudden cardiac arrest. I think it's subtitled, How a Suit Saved My Life. Could you yes. t- tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's quite sad. I still honestly think it's a reflection on society because I've, I've experienced it more recently as well, where basically... Where, where I had my cardiac arrest was a town called Caboolture in Australia. It's just north, um, just sorry, just south of a, of the town, I, like the area I grew up in called the Sunshine Coast. And it's often sort of joked as being this sort of uh, less, less well-off area. Uh, there's a lot of retirees. There's a lot of pensioners. There's a lot of people on welfare. So it, there's, uh, you know, naturally comes with that. There's some, you know, there's alcohol and drug problems that in that area. And so when I first collapsed at the train station, my mum met with the couple that I think eventually ended up calling triple zero emergency services. Um, and they said that most people, there was, there was quite a few people that just kept walking and stood over me. And they thought like, you know, they sort of shook their heads as if I was drug on drugs or just passed out drunk. So when this couple sort of walked over me and they saw that I had a suit on, 
that that was the only reason why they said they stopped. They thought it was unusual that someone in a suit would be collapsed on the ground. So it, if if I wasn't wearing a suit that day, if I was wearing a t-shirt and jeans, you know, it would have been it could have been a, another few minutes before maybe someone stopped to see if I was okay and that by that time it might have been too late so I definitely think that having that suit that day is has saved my life um, <laughs> I've actually still, I've still got the t-shirt I've still got my suit shirt in my bedside table right now it's uh, it's never left my bedside table it's still stained from all the uh it, it's quite it's it's quite it's quite disgusting I guess when I think about it now but it's still quite it's still stained with all the the benadine and the anesthetic and everything that they used when they were treating me at the time but it's just I I do want to frame it and actually get it nicely presented at some point just for me as a, a reminder of, yeah, what could have been. Do you remember much about that actual situation, the, the time you went to the station? Have you got got any recollection whether you felt ill beforehand or did you just collapse? No, so I think, you know, talking to the people in, in your group as well, it's not, you know, the um, the memory loss that comes with that. And so I can't remember sort of two uh, a week to two weeks before the event and I can't remember two weeks after I was there I was in a coma for a week so I definitely can't remember anything sort of over that period but yeah I think I, I do have been told by those bystanders so I was running to get to the train station and I ran up the stairs of an overpass to get to the platform I needed to get to and when I went up to the top of the stairs I've gone down on one knee and then I've stood up and I said, and I think someone said they asked if I was okay at that point. I said, no, I'm fine. I stood up, turned and walked straight into a wall and then collapsed down for good. And, and I don't remember any of that at all. <laughs> so it's a, it's one of those weird things. I think, you know, we talk about it in, in your group as well is it, it almost feels like it happened to another person. I think, you know, yeah, it didn't really, it, it, it probably if happened more, it was more of an event for the bystanders than it was for me. I woke up a week later, and from my perspective, nothing could happen. You know, I, I woke up and people were telling me that this had happened, and I'm kind of like, oh, okay, well, that sucks. But, <laughs> you know, it, it it's a really weird feeling of just being disconnected from the event in, in a way. How long were you down for, do you know? But yeah, so I got the... Um, the Queensland Ambulance Service to send me the paramedics report, which was really interesting. So for for a good seven, eight years, I had no information at all of what actually happened. So I, I asked them for the paramedics report and they were grateful enough to send it over. And yeah, so uh, I think from the time the call came in to the time I was, I think it's like spontaneous. Uh, uh, Rosk. Yeah, Rosk. Uh, until Rosk was about 47 minutes. I think, and even just from the time the call came in. So I think the call came in at uh, 7.04 in the morning. Um, the ambulance didn't actually even arrive until 7.11. So there, was, so there was at least seven minutes where I wasn't even getting paramedic support. And when that, when they arrived, the first notes they have on their report is that the, um, I was cyanotic, zero respiratory rate and zero pulse. So I might, And no one was doing CPR when the paramedics arrived. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I, I almost don't, you know, when, when I sort of asked my mom what cyanotic means, they were like, oh, well, that means when you present it as being blue and like, I was like, well, it was like, 
it's just amazing they even started CPR. Like, <laughs> the, mm. if they sort of turn up on scene and the, the patient's blue and no one's doing CPR and they've got no pulse, then what made them even think that I could be resuscitated? But um, maybe, yeah, just, I guess, you know, whatever they did or whatever they know is uh, worked. And so um, you said you're in a, a coma for a week. Would you know whether you were called at that time as well? Yeah, so it, it was, uh, I think it was relatively new back then, but they called it cryotherapy. And so I think as soon as I got to the hospital, they put uh, me in a nice bath um, and then met medically induced coma. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, again, that, that probably has helped me not have brain damage and come out of this as healthy as I can. Um, we're saying it's 10 years ago. So was it 2010? Uh, two, so October 2009. Yeah. And so w- when you did come out of that coma, um, what were you like? What was your your brain function? And did you have any um, sort of obvious deficits at the time? I don't know if it was obvious. I think, you know, people were expecting it. I know speaking to my mum and my friends, that people have said, uh, the doctors have told them that I would definitely wake up with brain damage. Uh, you know, they said when he wakes up, he's not going to be the same. Um, you know, so I guess they were prepared for me to be that way. And I think I definitely, I, I, I from third, from them telling me stories, because again, I can't really remember much of that period. When I did first wake up, they they said I was repeating myself. So I had a friend who was visiting and he would say, you know, he'd ask me, oh, so how are you feeling? And then I would answer, oh, good, good. How are you? And then he'd say, yeah, I'm good. And then and then he'd say, yeah, so, you know, what, how are you feeling? And then I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm good, good. How are you? And we just sort of went in this loop over and over again. And I, but I don't know if that was just the drugs or the medication I was coming out of, or if it was still a lingering effect of the coma. I, you know, I'm not sure whether or not that um, I did eventually get sort of the preliminary psych exam. It was just a very simple 10 question sort of test to judge if I had any psych, psychological problems. And I did fail because I think this is back in 2009. They asked me who was the prime minister of Australia. And I said, George Bush. I think that, that that registered me as a fail on that exam, but I think that was just me just getting confused with the question. And I don't, yeah, I'm not really sure why I answered that. <laughs> <laughs> so, what happened after leaving hospital? Were you just were you diagnosed with HCM there? Yeah, so I think they um, diagnosed me there with HCM, and they tied it in. Well, they started to piece together a family history. So when before I was born, back in the 70s, my auntie uh, had a child who died suddenly at the age of three, um, and they attributed it at the time as a cot death. And I think that was purely because back in those days, they didn't have the means to diagnose or understand sudden cardiac arrest. And so now, sort of once I'd had my condition, I have a cousin who also has a very severe case of, of it as well. Once once we started to show symptoms and when I woke up from the coma, we started to retroactively piece together a family history of actually that 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 cousin of mine might have actually died from a sudden cardiac arrest, uh, not, not a sort of unexplained cot death. And we then have since sort of discovered that it, it runs through my entire family from my mother's side. And yeah, it's it's a genetic uh, inherited uh, thing, and apparently it's a really strong gene. It's a uh, it's yeah, it's just it's carried through. 
Is there anything that can be done about that for future generations? I know there's uh, new gene editing techniques, but um, I don't know whether they can use those or is it medication? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't, I haven't necessarily followed up much on the on the gene side of things, but I'd like to think that, you know, say obviously you've got CRISPR, which is a gene editing technique. And I mean, even to a lesser extent, you've got um, the IVF and different fertility treatments where I'd like to think if I was to make the choice to have children that I could perhaps try and remove the condition from, or or at least turn off the gene that has caused the condition in me and, you know, maybe hope for the best. But I think ultimately, I don't think there is a cure necessarily for, for the condition at the moment. And in my case, the best, I guess the next step in my, in my treatment is just to get a heart transplant because there's sort of no way to reverse or fix the the condition the way it is. So, um, yeah, if I was to have children, I think, and moving forward into the future, it would definitely be, you know, hopefully just be able to turn off the gene and that will be the problem, be the fix of it. But, yeah, unfortunately, I think at the moment there's no real solution to the to it. What was your medication regime when you first had it then? So, yeah, so when I first had it, I woke up there, paramedics actually broke three of my ribs um, doing the CPR. So I was sort of strapped up quite tight, and I think I was on uh, a few medications just to help with the, the broken ribs and the rib pain. But generally, I've been on a uh, beta blocker, metoprolol, and an ECE inhibitor, uh, perindopril, from the start. And those have sort of been the two main medications I was on when I first left hospital. And since then, I've had increases in, in my medication requirements. And you've had increases in your medication requirements, I guess, because of uh, what we touched on at the beginning, which is all of these recurrent episodes of appropriate shocks, which yeah. suggest you're going into V-TAC or v V-fibrillation. Perhaps we can sort of go through those now. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's, I do remember seeing somewhere that your doctor saying that I think you've suffered a, an unusual amount of of shocks and therapeutic treatment from your ICD is do you know why that is is it because they haven't got the medication regime right or is it because your your conditioning's worsening I mean I'm not entirely sure I think you know with the I I know with with my with Dr. Varnava she we've definitely gone through a few uh, testing phases I've done an EP study and it electrophysiological study i've gone and checked for ablation so there's they've tried all these different things to try and figure out what caused this sort of storm or you know this pit these last 10 years of all these appropriate appropriate shocks but yeah i'm not sure if we really have an answer to that question yet i know just generally speaking i guess you know me self not not self-medicating but uh self-treating and that I've definitely reduced my exercise level and I think perhaps that has actually helped in some way. And I know my, my, the latest advice I got from the transplant team was surprise enough when you collapse on a treadmill was just don't exercise at all. <laughs> so it, it, it's definitely, I think perhaps if, you know, there's a lifestyle change there that is probably the best way for me to treat it moving forward. But there is a, also the, you know, I think everybody with this condition probably has that chat with their doctor where it's not good for your heart, you know, your heart eventually, uh, especially with all the appropriate shocks, every time you get, every time you go into a ventricular 
fibrillation and then get a shock, you actually scar the heart muscle a little bit. So the more you have and the more the more it continues on, the less effective your heart actually becomes because it's just filled up with more and more scar tissue. So I think, you know, it's just, it's, it's not great in the long term, but for now, I think just managing it with excess, or lack of exercise and, and eating as healthy as I can, I think it's probably... But yeah, we don't really know why, I don't think, any of it happens. Do you want to run through the various episodes then and perhaps uh, stop and when we get to the last one, just the, the therapeutic shocks, as, as it were? Yes, okay. So the second, so the first time, so once I was out of hospital, I had the broken ribs and, you know, you, you just get this ICD implanted and you, you sort of learn to live with that and how was that? Sorry, sorry. You're probably the youngest person I've spoken to on the podcast, who's a, well, who's a survivor, but also you're 20 years old up till the point you've had your arrest. You're a fit and healthy guy, and then you had this episode, and then you come out of hospital. Not really. Well, you've sort of got some understanding of why it's happened, but you've also got a bag of medications and an ICD in you as well. So, what's that done to you? Actually, is it? How has it changed your life? Yeah, I mean, it definitely scared me. Uh, you know, I, I think anybody's probably lying if they say it's not a scary experience to go through. Yeah, and you know, I guess it does. It, it definitely put things into perspective. And I know, I, I mean, a, a part of it was the a part of it was the broken ribs in a way, in that I was restricted from going out and doing sort of. You know, I, I was definitely sort of out of commission for a while, just by the ribs. So that I guess helped me with a little bit of. The getting used to it, just being at home, not not doing much activity, sort of helped me ease into the the process a little bit. But since I sort of went back into the open world, you know, you're definitely a lot more cautious, and I took things a lot more slower. And I wouldn't say I took less risk, but from from the start, I definitely sort of just I think took a step back and was just reevaluating what was important and what was worth. You know, is it worth going out? All, and having an all-nighter is it worth drinking that energy drink is it you know just just little questions like that that you have in your day-to-day life so that that, that but that was immediately after the the first the first accident and i think you know if one thing i've you know in, in a very macabre sort of way the one way i've benefited from having so many appropriate shocks is that you know i've been able to learn more like over time just how to continue on with things and and just get over it and sort of deal with deal with those sort of feelings and actually just handle you know handle life as it comes so i think going through the experience of having so many has actually been a benefit in that it's just it's helped me get used to it but yes i think definitely after that first one though being so young it was definitely a you know pun intended a shock to the system and so yeah it was it was an interesting time but interesting yeah <laughs> i mean he said yeah, yeah i guess I, i'm not really sure how else to to explain to explain it but it was definitely a, a an interesting way to spend your 21st birthday as well so my 21st birthday was about two months after my event so it was it definitely put a a different spin on that birthday than what it would have been <laughs> I I bet it did. <laughs> and, and your your first appropriate shock i think was when you were 21 as well wasn't it yeah, so it'd been 18 months now since the initial out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. I was back to, you know, back back to work, back to life, you know, out with friends. 
and I maybe I maybe this is a little bit of a sign of perhaps brain damage or perhaps some sort of memory loss. But I guess I've always had a uh, an easy time of forgetting, <laughs> so, I, and I've used that to benefit in the sense that I'd honestly, you know, after eighteen months, I'd honestly had almost forgotten anything had even happened to begin with. You know, it, it, it's just, and I think I think that actually helped me get on with my life, as you know, I just, you know, just it's probably not the healthiest, and I'm sure if there's any mental health people sort of listening, they they're probably screaming at me right now, but. You know, I think it definitely helped me just to sort of push it into the back of my head and really just don't think, of, just not think about it and, you know, and try and forget it as much as I could. And so after the 18 months, I sort of, I was living life. I think even the week before I had gone up, we've got a, a mountain range just around from what we've got on the Sunshine Coast called the Glasshouse Mountains. And me and my friends stayed up all night. I had two Red Bulls and then we went and climbed a mountain. And, <laughs> and nothing happened, you know, no no ill effect was noticed. Uh, I, I definitely struggled climbing the mountain. I couldn't keep up with my friends. They, I, I ended up stopping on a plateau, which is like a semi, but they ended up going all the way up to the, the very peak. But still, yeah, no, no sort of flutters or heart issues on the back of that. And then a week later, I was at my cousin's and we were having a boys' night, playing video games, watching uh, rugby league and just sort of drinking you know I think we had we had KFC for lunch and then we had pizza for dinner and then we just had lollies and energy drinks and soda all night so it was it was definitely (laughs) it sounds like a disaster waiting to happen (laughs) it wasn't the healthiest 24 hours (laughs) of my life but yeah and so it it was about six in the morning and we sort of had enough playing our video games so we're like well we might as well try and get some sleep now We'll, we'll go to bed so I had a, a sofa lounge downstairs and we were playing video games upstairs. So I ran downstairs to sort of get ready for bed. I'd forgot my phone, so I sort of jogged back up the stairs to get my phone. And then when I came back down the stairs again, I really started, I felt that what I now know as the eight second feeling, I, know, I felt that I felt sort of really dizzy, really sick, you know, sort of really out of breath all of a sudden. And at the time, I remember actually attributing it to like, oh, like, goddamn, I'm fat, or you know, like, I was just like, I've had a really unhealthy day, and I've just, you know, I'm really, really, really unfit, and so that's, I was like, okay, well, if I just lay down in bed, uh, it will go away, and so I laid down on the sofa lounge for a, a minute, and it, the feeling just didn't go away, so I got back up, and I was like, oh, well, I have, I forgot to take my medication yesterday, and I hadn't taken it that day, so I'll go take my medication now, and I walked into the kitchen and reached up to the cupboard to get a, a glass to fill with water and sort of, you know, loud noise. Everything just got really loud. And then I remember just, you know, car horns. Like for some reason the dream, has to, I had sort of a dream of, you know, New York taxis, the overground subway going over the top, car horns beeping, hot dog stand. And it was sort of like, it was it was almost like a segue from a like a sitcom TV show, like a Friends, if a Friends ever has to change scenes, they'll usually have these flashes of New York as before as they change scenes. And that's what it was very much like that. And then I woke up and I was staring at the ceiling and had this really weird feeling. And it's 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 definitely one a feeling that stuck with me is, you know, it, I was sort of questioning reality. I sort of woke up and I honestly felt really good. I felt like I'd had a good eight hours sleep. Like I was relaxed. I was like, "This is a this is an amazing feeling. I feel so good right now." 
and I was sort of staring at the ceiling and I was like, did I, wasn't I at my cousin's last night? Did I actually, you know, and then it, it was really like, if I was at my cousin's, why am I waking up now staring at a roof? Like, uh, you know, and it was uh, this moment of like question reality. I couldn't actually really process what time of day it was and what, you know, if last night had happened or if, you know, it was just a really weird feeling of not knowing what reality was. And I sort of then snapped back into actual reality, I guess. And my heart was still racing. I think I did a quick sort of two fingers check and I I sort of clocked in my mind about 160 beats per minute. So it was still going quite fast when I woke up. And that kind of scared me a little bit. So this was the first time anything had happened in 18 months since the hospital, the big major thing. So it kind of scared me a little bit. And I had two options here. It was either try and drag myself across the floor to my phone on the table and reach up and get my phone or just start calling out for help for my cousin to wake up and come down. And I decided to start calling for help. So I didn't think that crawling around on the ground would be the best option in, in that situation and yeah so he luckily he, he, he heard me and came down and they called the paramedics but by the time the paramedics arrived my ECG was all back to normal I think my heart rate was back to 55 and, and they really couldn't tell that anything was wrong yeah so that, that was that was the second incident of that had they told you what to do if you had experienced the shock not, not so much, but if I like, I mean, they even said that not, I don't even need to call a paramedic most of the times, and and I like I could almost attest to that after that experience because when the paramedics did arrive, they you know they did their ECGs, they read it, but my heart rate was back to fifty five, my beats were sort of healthy, you know, there was, there wasn't even a sign of a murmur anymore, like everything was back to normal as far as their equipment was concerned, they were there treating a perfectly healthy. 21 year old you know it didn't even there was no way that they could tell something was wrong until they took me to hospital and get my device interrogated and so that's I think generally been the advice is that I mean you know obviously paramedics are great to have around if if it's not getting any better or if you feel like the situation's worse but I was told that you know after 50 if it does happen after 15 minutes if I feel fine I should be good enough just to stand up and go about my day (laughs) And yeah, I think, you know, that's definitely the experiences I've had. So after your, after this experience, did it change, change you in any way? And did you have to go back to the uh, cardiologist and what did they do if you did? Yeah. So after that one, I mean, it's quite childish now in hindsight, but I, I, they, the paramedics took me to hospital for precaution and the cardiologist team there wanted to keep me overnight for observations but it was actually the the premiere date of the very first Avengers movie, and so all of my friends and I had bought tickets months before, and I was just, I just remember arguing with the doctors like, no, you can't keep me in like the Avengers movie is out tonight. I've got to go and see the Avengers movie, but unfortunately they won, and I had to miss it and spend spend the night in hospital. But yeah, after that, I think it it was quite far as well. I th- you know, I've definitely had it more lucky here in London where I do have the opportunity just to go to the hospital, which is just down the road from me and get an interrogation. But back in Australia, the hospital I was being treated at was an hour and a half drive away um, in the nearest city. So it wasn't really an option to just pop over to the cardiologist and get an ICD interrogation. So I think I just I honestly went back to my back to work and back to life and went about like nothing happened. And again, sort of that 
however unhealthy or healthy it is, I just put it, squashed it down, put it in the back of my mind and forgot about it and went and went, went about my business. And, and yeah, I think, you know, life sort of went back to normal for about to, uh, another 18 months and hadn't thought about it. And about uh, six months to a year after that, I was working in an advertising agency in, in my small little town and my boss at the time was like, you know, have you ever, she just came back from London um, and she had had an agency over here and an advertising agency over here. And she was like, you know, you should really go. There's a lot of work over there. It's really exciting work. You know, for, for a young digital advertiser, it's the mecca of business opportunities. So I was like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll have a look. So I had a look online and there was a certain visa I could get. So I, on a whim, I was like, well, it only costs $300 or something like that. So I, I applied for it just to see what would happen. And three weeks later, I, I got the visa back and I was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And I think that was on a Wednesday, like I know it by day. So that was on a Wednesday. And then on the Thursday, the next day, I went to the travel agent. I was like, well, how much would it be for a one-way flight to London? <laughs> and she was like, well, I've ever got one here for $600. It leaves on Saturday. And I was like, okay, sure, I'll take it. And yeah, within within the span of a week, I'd gone from having, a, you know, working in a small agency in, in my hometown to being in being in London. I sort of just remember telling my mum and my grandparents, like, yeah, I'm, hi, like, I'm moving to London next week, <laughs> forever, you know, bye. <laughs> it was just a really, so yeah, I don't know what, uh, you know, I, I like to think that, my heart has like changed, changed my output, like changed my outlook in a way that led to that decision. But I, I honestly couldn't really pinpoint it. But yeah, it's uh, it, it was an interesting experience. But again, I think that attributed to just forgetting about, you know, I, my heart condition honestly didn't even come into the equation when I was thinking about coming here to London. Like I didn't think, oh, what have I got to do for medication and what have I got to, you know, I. You know, that I just honestly didn't think about it at all in my in my day to day. So it was just, yeah, it was just a really spur of the moment decision. And I was over here and sort of arrived, and I had fifty kilograms, I think, of luggage. I had two suitcases, and I didn't obviously because it was so quick. I didn't have time to really suss out accommodation, so I was staying the first week in a hotel, the Easy Easy Hotel, Easy Jet Hotel. And it was when I when I arrived, it was in Ells Court, and it was six and even just the journey the train from Heathrow uh, was had broken down at Teddington or somewhere around that area or just somewhere halfway and I had to everyone had to disembark and walk up the stairs and go across to another platform and I remember asking like is there no like is there no elevator and they're like no there's no elevators in London and I'm like oh great so I had to carry 50 kilograms of luggage up these stairs and at this small train station and finally made it to Earl's Court train station and I was like oh this was back before the refurbishments Earl Court has now been refurbished but before when I first arrived six years ago there was no elevator there either so I had to drag my 50 kilograms of luggage up the stairs at Earl's Court and then when I finally got to the hotel they were like your room's on the sixth floor and I was like great is there an elevator and they're like no there's no elevator so <laughs> once I got to the hotel I had to then carry and after all of that you know carrying around this luggage all through London still nothing happened no no events no so it just really led to like you know just really played into this idea of just being able to forget um, okay so you weren't you weren't worried about stairs prior to that because at the station 
when you first had a cardiac arrest, it was soon after running up some stairs and then at your friend's house, you'd run up some stairs, hadn't you? Yeah, exactly. Well, at that point, I hadn't really put, you know, I think uh, I've definitely become more reflective now. But so, yeah, now I would definitely be completely worried if I had to do that to do that with a, a set of stairs but back then I think I just didn't really didn't really um have that mindset or thing which which again makes me lead to it does make me realize how much of my condition is mental or how much of you know my day-to-day hang-ups are actually just mental and, and might not necessarily be physical so you're in London so what happened next in terms of your your cardiac arrest because I think it was not until a couple of years later that it reared its ugly head again yeah, so I was in London then for a year. Again, nothing had happened in that year, and it had been about 18 months now since my second at my cousin's. And like like I tended to do, I just put it in the back of my mind and had gotten to the point where I just completely forgot about it. And I was walking to work one day. I, I, the agency I got a job at here was in Covent Garden, just off Drury Lane. And so I got off at Covent Garden Station. I started walking down Long Acre towards Drury uh, Lane. Um, and about halfway there, I sort of felt this flight. Like I just felt this sort of like my heart skip a beat. Uh, and I sort of thought something was wrong at the time. And I looked, I, I remember looking in a, in a shop front window just to, you know, I, I don't even know why I wanted to look, but I just sort of wanted to see if everything was okay. And I remember my skin looked really pale, like just like, white and at the time my my first thought was like right well I need to go get some (laughs) I've been spending way too much time inside Um, but my hands started getting a bit clammy and I didn't really put you know I I hadn't become an expert at that point but I you know didn't put two to two together so I kept walking and as I kept walking it gradually just got worse and worse and worse until I turned the final corner to the office and I saw some colleagues sitting across the road having a cigarette and I was like well Okay, I'm feeling really bad, but sort of like at my cousin's the second time, I, I sort of thought that if I go sit down or if I go and rest, that perhaps it will just go away by itself. And I've later found out that that's not the case. It, it almost, it's impossible for that to happen in, in a way. But at the time I thought, okay, well, if I just go and say hello to my colleagues and sit down, I might be able to just ride this out. But unfortunately, yeah, I, I walked over to the road I did end up sitting down with them, but then apparently I I can't necessarily remember that this, but they said that I sort of passed out and sort of went leant over to my colleague's shoulder and had a little bit of a seizure, like a wobble, and then I I woke back up. But to me, I can't remember that at all. Like I I, I don't even like I tell them like, "Are you sure I passed out? I don't remember passing out." But then yeah, they said, "Are you okay?" And I was like, "Oh well, I think I just had a cardiac arrest and." they naturally sort of got that look on their face and they're like well do you want us to call a paramedic and you know it's been it'd been so long and it's still only really the second occurrence out of outside of my first main one so I was still I was a little bit scared myself and and obviously being in London so I was like yeah can you call the paramedics so um, they called the paramedics and they took me in for observation and yeah it was it was it was a really really weird one because I I definitely felt the shock. No, sorry, I didn't feel the shock in that one. So it was, so it was just a, it was a weird situation of you know I didn't really know what had happened. I wasn't even sure if I had had a cardiac arrest. I, I sort of had, I, I assumed so because of how my, my heart, my body felt. 
but I couldn't really like it, it wasn't until the doctor came back and they said yeah so when I first felt that feeling halfway down the walk I had started to go into polymorphic VT and then I was in polymorphic VT for 10 minutes before it de- degraded into ventricular fibrillation and at that point I had the uh, appropriate shock from that. Could I just stop you there? There's two things I want to ask you. Polymorphic VT. I've heard of VT, but what what's polymorphic VT? And the second thing is, do you know if your device was trying to pace you out of that, or can it be paced out of? Yeah, so polymorphic VT. I think it's also called uh, points. Yeah, to, to to start the point or something similar to that. I think it's just it, it's a it's a form of VT that is an even more irregular slash so it's not a it's not a constant so i think vt is technically just a accelerated heart rate so i think you know when you're exercising you are you do go into svt which is so it's you you do go into form of sv uh, vt when just by increasing your heart rate whereas polymorphic vt is a increased heart rate but in a very erratic way that you know the heart the actual heartbeat and the the way that the beat is made up on an ECG, it's very erratic. So that it's, I think it's the precursor of going into ventricular fibrillation and completely devolving, dissolving into an erratic heart heart rate. And then, yeah, so, ah, sorry, what was the other part? Um, um, And would your ICD um, have been trying to pace you out of that? Because they can do pacing therapy, can't they? Most of them, I think. Yeah, so I I think they can. I think the device I has can, but from every interrogation and, and place I've gone to, they actually don't have the pacing um, set on mine. I think what they've found, uh, especially with this first event, so what really confused them with this first event was that, A, my device from Australia, because at that point my device had been implanted in Australia, and so the UK team didn't really have much of a say in how it was programmed. It was originally programmed in Australia, and I, they 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 programmed it not to pace. And the UK team, when they evaluated that after this cardiac arrest or after this incident, they found that the polymorphic VT actually started when my heart rate was only seventy. So I, I don't really know the science of how that happens, but I think it, it sort of you know my heart was erratic. But it's still like just beating slowly, but being erratic, and so because it was beating slowly, the ICD didn't actually pick it up until it started to get into the the speed that would go into a monitor zone. Um, so what they had to do was they just increase the monitor zone to take it all the way down, so that the the monitor zone of my ICD is now very low start to a very sort of mid low section. So they just had to lower that. But in terms of pacing, they decided to keep it off because technique I, I think you know the way it is when you go into at that point i don't know if pacing is effective or, or what it's been explained to me is that the pacing wouldn't be effective if we turned on the pacing because at that point a shock is the only thing that's going to reset the system effectively that was a quite a surreal experience i imagine all of that if you don't really know what was happening at the time and understand that you you had some more experiences not that long afterwards Yes, I mean, I guess, you know, stupidly slash, you know, uh, as you're probably familiar with now, I, I went back to work the next day. I probably should have taken some time off, but 
I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm, you know, every, everything's fine. What, what, what happened yesterday? I can't remember what happened yesterday. So I went back to work the next day and continued on with my week and everything seemed fine again until, so that wasn't, it was actually a, a, a quite a comical series of events. That was on a Thursday that I had this uh, cardiac or, or this, uh, this incident. And then I went through the weekend, everything was fine. And then the next Thursday, uh, I actually then had a second and a third event. So I was sort of walking to the office again, back to normal. Everything felt fine. Didn't feel any funny feelings walking to the office. Didn't feel like anything was wrong or happening. Made it to the to the office door and started. So our office was up four flights of stairs. So every day I would walk up these four flights of stairs to get to our office and this day I'd made it up the first two flights of stairs and then I woke up and I was at the bottom of the first flight of the stairs. So, and I was sort of sprawled up against the corner of the, uh, of the stairwell and my heart was still rapidly racing. So obviously I now only being a week out of having my previous other one, I was almost starting to get a little bit familiar with the feelings and I was like, Oh, okay, well, I, I think I know what's happened. And, Unfortunately, while I was laying there, I then felt my heart start to beat irregularly. Like I felt that feeling start again and start all in that whole process, start all over again as I was laying there, sprawled up against the wall. And then I went into another episode of ventricular fibrillation as I was laying there from the first event. And that's when a colleague came up the stairs and they saw me and they asked me if I was okay. And I was like, no, you better call the paramedic again because... I'm now at the bottom of the stairwell. I don't. I don't know what sort of damage I've done, and yeah. So that that was sort of that that was four and five, just you know, within fifteen twenty seconds of each other. And when we interrogated the device afterwards, it showed that I went into polymorphic VT again, which led into VF. And then the second one, I think Dr. Barnaba called a rebound VF. So apparently, it's a thing where you get treated successfully for the first VF, but then your heart straight away puts you back. So it gets, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I can't, I guess I'm not the best person to explain it, but I sort of my heart just rebounded straight back into VF after it had received an, an effective treatment. And so then I had the uh, second shock from that at that point. And the, after that one, that was a little bit more scary, having two in a row, being at the bottom of the stairs, realizing that okay that time I definitely passed out because as I, you know as I said the first time I didn't really believe my colleagues when they'd said I'd passed out and has a seizure and this was pretty much a wake-up call like no you just fell downstairs like you you just you just had a, you just had a cardiac arrest on the stairs you passed out and now you and you just tumbled down the stairs so that 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 sort of hit me a little bit harder that one I bet, uh, I bet hit, hit, hitting the bottom of the stairs <laughs> yeah. hit you a bit harder as well <laughs> Again, I get you know, pun, pun on the there, but yeah, it's yeah it, that that was a bit scarier for me. So that one at the hospital because it had been a week since the last one, they decided to keep me um, in observation for three nights at the uh, Marlebone Hospital in Central London, which another you know I think I mean I guess I don't know if it's my personality, but I thought it was actually quite an upside to the whole the whole situation was getting a uh, I, uh, when the call came out. This, the same paramedic that was at the last one came to this 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 time and they then also called out a full ambulance so he was on a motorbike and the, they called the full ambulance as well and when they took me to hospital the motorbike paramedic gave the ambulance an, an escort through central london and i was sort of just sitting there in the back 
getting, you know, preliminary ECGs and things like that and just sort of looking out the front and seeing like, a, you know, like a motorcycle escorting. So I just thought it was just like a surreal moment of like, I can't believe I'm getting a motorcycle escort through like the centre of London right now. It's, it was a really weird, it was just, it was a really like weird feeling of like, okay, it sucks to be in this situation, but well, how many people get to have a VIP <laughs> treatment? Have a it was yeah, exactly. for politicians and ambassadors and the like. <laughs> Yeah, so that that was a really weird feeling, but yeah, that was unfortunately three nights. They kept me in Marlborough Hospital three nights for that one, um, but again, they couldn't find anything. Like not not that they couldn't find anything wrong, but they just there was no indication of anything wrong after I had arrived at hospital, and after three days, they let me leave. Is there any change um, in medications or anything, or what to do? So, so not at that point. So at that point, I just went back to my life and. That, again, happened on a Thursday, and they kept me in hospital. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the three nights. So, sorry, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. And they discharged me on the Sunday, and I went back to work on the Monday. <laughs> again, which is probably a little bit stupid. I, 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 I think, you know, one of my, part of my coping mechanism is to actively try and forget and just just keep myself busy to, to sort of just get over the the emotional side of 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 these incidences so i went back to work on that monday and again so i was feeling fine i'd been just spent three days in hospital feeling fine and there's also this like restless feeling of i'm sure some listeners have probably had it but if you've ever yeah i I guess for me when i go to hospital after these things i know i'm healthy I, I, i don't know how to explain but i i think after the second one there was a case where like doctors were actually rushing around the ward going oh we don't have enough we don't have enough beds for people we don't have enough rooms and the nurses were all talking to each other saying like oh we don't you know we we have to move this patient here because we don't have a bed and all this sort of thing and i'm sort of sitting there on this bed thinking like a i want to go and see avengers and b (laughs) i'm completely healthy and i'm just totally wasting a bed space right now like I, i could get up and run if i wanted to and you've you're keeping me here in a bed and wasting a bed so I had that sort of restless feeling again at this when they kept me in three days and surrounded in this cardiac unit full of people who were having serious heart problems. And I was just laying there getting free food and, and medical attention for, for something that I didn't really necessarily need. But so by the time the Monday came, I just like, okay, I'm going to get back to work and get back into things. And again, everything felt fine. Everything went back to normal. No worries, no flutters, no 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 nothing really ever happened but then come the thursday so that's the weird thing three thursdays in a row come the thursday i was walking to the office and this time i made it to the front door and then when i got to the front door i felt the whole feeling so at this point i've become a professional at dying so i was like okay i've got this i know exactly what this feeling is i know i'm about to go on a cardiac arrest i know what's coming so i i sort of tried to think what what could I do in that situation while I was in the Marleybone hospital for three days one of the team members told me about this eight seconds that an ICD takes about eight seconds to charge shock to before it delivers you so during those eight seconds I'll be in VF or I'll be in VT and I'll be able to feel that but then after eight seconds it will shock me so that's when I really learned about this eight second rule and what I call the eight seconds of dying but then so I'd felt this feeling. I knew I was in it and I was trying to figure out what I should do. And so I saw the the keypad on the on the front door and there's a button to call reception. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll call my receptionist, the receptionist, and I'll 
let her know to call an ambulance or something or come down and get me because no one was around at this point. And so I, 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 but when I was looking at the keypad, I'd used it for the last 18 months. I could not figure out how to call the receptionist. So I don't know if at that point that was a bit of hypoxia or just panic or I'm not sure, but I could staring at that keypad for a few seconds, I could not figure out what button to push to call the receptionist. So I ended up just sitting down and waiting it out. And yeah, a couple of seconds later, got the shock. And that one, luckily I didn't actually pass. I know I will. I know I didn't pass out for that one. And then I got the shock. I felt the full I was going to say, did you, did you um, feel it? And you know, there's so many people want to know, what does a shock feel like? And as you've explained already, lots of them, you don't feel anything because you've perhaps gone unconscious. But this one, what did it feel like? Yeah, so this one was uh, it, it was a it was a thud, and you know it's it's a it's, I mean it's just a you know horse caught like I think uh, my cousin who's had them as well she's their family's into equestrian and she's like it's getting like like getting kicked in the chest by a horse and I'm like well I've never really experienced that but <laughs> it's that it is that very much like it's just that big punch to the uh, collarbone sort of upper chest area. For me, I sort of feel it go up the side of my neck and then I start to taste metal in my mouth. So I get a really metallic taste in my mouth. And then luckily, though, it, it does sound painful and it does hurt at the point of it. But for me, at least, it just it dissipates after a few seconds. Like it's a very short pain. You don't it doesn't linger in any way for me, at least anyway. So much better uh, than the alternative as well. Exactly, yeah, it's so much better. Uh, this one actually kind of freaked me out a little bit because after it had happened, I threw up, and I asked the doctor afterwards again because the company, at this point, it was almost out of my control. The company just called the paramedics as soon as <laughs> I, they found out about it, and the doctor then told me that it's one of the one of the body functions when everything like this is going on is just like send all the blood it can back to the heart to keep it going but the side effect of that is then your stomach and everything else has to sort of go as well so that that might have been a reason why i vomited after i woke up for all after the after that event but yeah and, and funny enough it was the same paramedic as well he came around so for three three times three thursdays in a row the same time every thursday and the same paramedic every all times and he sort of joked to me as I, as they were preparing me for the the actual ambulance that was arriving. He was joking that every morning for the last like every Thursday morning for the last three weeks, he's been trying to buy a bagel around the corner at a cafe when he gets the call that I've had a cardiac arrest. So he said next week he's just going to wait an extra hour before he goes to the cafe <laughs> just in case. I was like, yeah, I was sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry, sorry to ruin your breakfast. <laughs> but, yeah, so that one. After that one, I sort of took the hint and I was like, okay, I'm going to take a few weeks off. And my company at the time was really, really good about it. They completely supportive and understanding. And they actually then offered, well, they did ultimately, they paid for my mum to come over. So they flew my mum from Australia. They paid for her hotel. And they got they got her actually an Airbnb on the same street that I live. So she she was living just pretty much across the road for three weeks great yeah, to hear just... from an employer doing something like that because i've heard lots of other stories that weren't quite so good from employers after people yeah, I know. I feel, yeah 
I feel guilty. Like it's just I can't believe how lucky I got. You know, they 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 were great people. It was the people more than the company, I think. But you know, they they just really looked after me, and they even got uh, so during those three after those three weeks when I decided to go back to work, they like gave me a a, a car hire for a month to take me to and from the office so I didn't have to walk from the train station anymore and it, it was just yeah they're just like I honestly I wouldn't be in London anymore and I wouldn't you know and and in a really sort of grim sort of way I might not even be alive anymore if it wasn't for how my company treated me at that time and really helped me through those through those events even to the point where my see you know the CEO of the company he took me to the hospital he took me so to my first transplant. So after that point, Dr. Varnava started to recommend me for the transplant. Um, she couldn't, so we couldn't figure out why I'd had this sort of what she called a storm. Uh, and my boss at the time, he like, he's like, well, you can't go to the transplant hospital yourself. So, you know, my CEO drove me and stayed with me all day at the hospital. So yeah, they, they were really, really good in just looking after me. So it, it, it was almost just, I can't believe how lucky I am, especially when I read, the stories you do you do hear that not every not everyone gets that same treatment from their employers but yeah so i took the three weeks off and that's where dr vanova increased my medication then she put me on amiodarone which speaking to some of the people at at the the meetups and the catch-ups we go to i think it, it's quite a powerful drug when you're first getting loaded onto it that, you know, you get you get very dizzy for a few weeks. You get this sense of vertigo as a side effect. And so it really took me a while to get used to that medication and the side effect of it as well. I think it actually damages your liver or your thyroid or it, it's just, it's not a, it's not a good drug for your body, but Dr. Vanova felt like it was necessary to keep my heart under control. And we went on, we went on that medication from there and that sort of then, I, it, it started to go away, um, like sort of started to go back to normal. All the feelings went back to normal, uh, and then six months later, I was at work once more. At this point, again, six months is a long is is enough time for me to forget about it. So I'd forgotten about it. I just back to back to life as normal. I was starting to get a little bit more cautious of stairs, like to the point now where I started to just give myself a breather at the top of so like I said there's four flights of stairs to get to my office so before I didn't even think about it but now by the when I got up to the top of the fourth flight of stairs I just stopped and really sort of made sure I caught my breath before I continued about my day so I was I was starting to get a little bit more cautious about stairs and walking in general and yeah, this day though felt Felt 100% normal, made it up the first two flights of stairs fine, and I actually made it up to the top of the four flights, and, you know, I, I, I felt really good. I felt I felt quite energized, and I felt like I was quite proud of myself that I didn't even feel like I needed to take a breather this time, like, just psychologically as well. Like, I felt, oh, I'm feeling really good about this. I can just continue on without stopping. But then my HR manager, she followed me up the staircase after I did, and when I got up to the, when she got up to the top and saw me, she started talking to me and we had a conversation and she started to walk into the office and I was like, well, not to be rude. Like I really wanted to stop and have a breather psychologically, but I didn't want to be rude as well. So maybe, maybe the bit of the British culture had rubbed off on me. I don't know, you know, I, I wanted to be polite. So I followed her into the office and continued talking with her 
And as we're walking down the hallway of the office, I felt that feeling. I just went st- and straight away, I instantly recognized it. And it, it's quite weird. So at this point, I knew it couldn't help. But I got to about halfway down and I was looking around for a chair to sit on. I was like, okay, if I just sit down, uh, you know, it's going to go away. And, you know, I, I don't know why I keep telling myself that lie, but I don't know if it's just a part of the, the, the mind trying to like think of any way to save itself. But I just, so I, I was just like, okay, well, if I get back to my desk, I'll sit back down at my desk and I'll take a break and I'll just hope, hope, pray that all, you know, not pray, but hope, hope that it goes away. And then when I got back to my desk, in, in, in my experience, what happened then was that the HR manager followed me to my desk and she wrote and she called out my name and she wrote my name three times on a whiteboard that magically appeared next to my desk. But what happened in reality, apparently, is that I slumped over and fell off my computer chair. And when I woke up, a freelancer was sort of cradling my head down towards the ground as, as they were lowering me to the floor. So I sort of, again, put two and two together and I was like, okay, so that happened again. You, you must re- <laughs> really freak out your work colleagues. <laughs> yeah, well, that's this was a freelancer as well. This is someone who had no experience of the last sort of two months of all this happening. So he, or six months sorry, of all this happening. So he didn't have any context to it at all. He said that he saw me sit down and he asked me a question and he said my face just went all slack and then I slumped over and he rushed around to like pull me down to the ground so yes it must have been crazy for him but it was definitely yeah my colleagues now had almost gotten used to the side of me getting stretched out of the office (laughs) you know when it happens five uh four five times in such a short period there's been everyone's just like oh Jamie's Jamie needs the ambulance again there is and it was actually, I, I was quite gracious. I was quite gracious for it as well in that when I was laying on the ground, obviously I was quite self-conscious because I'm just laying there after apparently past, like apparently slumping over and um, having a cardiac arrest. And so I was a little bit self-conscious, but everybody was good in that they were sort of, I knew they were trying not to look, but they were very, you know, they were just, they went about their business without really making that much of a fuss about it, mm-hmm. which I actually appreciated a little bit. So yeah, that was so. That was number six. At this I'll point. bet you were making sure that you wore clean underpants every day that that period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just one of those things where you're like, oh god, it, that that was definitely the one where I started. Then okay, like I have to think about this more often, and, and that was where I really started to think. Okay, I can't, I can't keep forgetting. Like I can't keep shoving this in a little box and putting it in the back of my head because it's not. It's not going away, unfortunately. And so that was where I really then started. And that did, there was definitely a period of a little, you know, a little bit of depression. And it sort of led to the sort of, I think, I think that the doctor said at the time was PTSD. And sort of, you know, I started developing these safety behaviors of even, even continues now where I'll, you know, if, if I'm walking after about 500 meters or so, or not even then, you know, if I start to feel anything, like if my if I feel that my heart rate is even raised by two beats per minute, I'll stop what I'm doing and I'll make sure it goes back down to 55 before I continue. <laughs> you know, so I think, you know, it, that, that's where these sort of unhealthy behaviors started to creep into my life. But I definitely started paying attention a lot more after after that one and just it, making sure. Do you wear anything like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch to keep an eye on your heart rate? 
or is it all no so my so my boss well my company did buy me a fitbit <laughs> that was a, another one of the gracious perks that they were really good with they bought me a fitbit they bought me a, a cookbook for heart healthy food you know they, they they really really looked after me but yeah so i did have a fitbit for a while uh, but there was a case when i was at the hammersmith train station and i just walked up a set of stairs and I glanced down at the Fitbit and it said that my heart rate was 110 and that sort of just freaked me out a little bit and I had to stop and pause and I didn't feel like it was going 110 but I was like well if the Fitbit says it's going 110 I'm stopping what I'm doing and then when when I sort of felt through that and waited that out I was like okay I can't like I did do some research online and the Fitbit is not rated it's not a medical device the Fitbit is not rated for medical readings of your heart rate it's it's an estimate at best mm-hmm. but it's not it's not accurate enough to make any sort of medical decisions yeah, based i, I would agree with that good over sort of a long period i think i i take the resting heart rate from that i think that's reasonably good but you're right it's not in any one reading you should not necessarily take it uh or take it with a little pinch of salt i would so but I believe the the Apple Watch has got FDA approval and is supposed to be classed as a medical device. I think. Yeah, so I think the Apple. And to be fair, this was you know so this was now three years ago. So technology's undoubtedly improved in that time, uh, even within Fitbits. So Fitbits might actually be as accurate now as the smartwatches because they use a different technology. I think at at the time the Fitbit I had was just using the. The, the sort of the laser the light technique to get the pulse so i don't think that was very accurate but yeah so i did have that and then it just sort of i, I don't wear a watch it's a personal preference it just sort of wasn't wasn't fitting into my lifestyle to wear it and if it was just going to freak me out whenever i looked at the numbers i figured it wasn't probably worth wearing <laughs> full time again you know like like exactly you know the theme of this interview so it has been that my coping mechanism is just package it up and forget about it and if i'm wearing a wearing a watch that tells me every time i look at it what what my heart rate's doing it's a bit hard to forget mm. <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit hard to, it's a bit hard to package it up in the back of your mind if you got if you're staring at your heart rate on, on a screen uh, every time you glance down so yes yeah, so it just i think I, I never really got into the the fitbit apple watch uh-huh. Um, you, you mentioned that you, you, you mentioned to you that you might be suffering some PTSD like safety behaviors. So did you receive any counseling or any help to help you work those through? Yeah, so I went to so the Charing Cross Hospital have always been really great care for me. So the, is where Dr. Varnava was originally based and she's now at Hammersmith Hospital. And so they've always offered really good care and they put me up with an, a specialist cardiac counselor who actually specializes in helping people post cardiac arrest. Oh, I didn't know there was um, such a person. Through. Yeah. So he, 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 he was really good and he, he knew how to deal with that. And we were talking about these, you know, talking about stopping. And one of the activities he wanted me to do was, okay, let, he was like, let's, let's go for a walk outside. When you start to feel like you want to stop, just push through that feeling and just every day if you keep pushing through that feeling eventually you'll start to push that feeling sort of back and back and back and back and so it's like okay so we went out for a walk and we started walking and we started talking and I got about halfway and I was like 
okay, I felt the feeling. I, I really, really want to stop right now. And he's like, no, let's keep going. So I started to walk, just even just only a few steps more. And I was like, nope, I've gone into VT. I know it. And so I sat down on a park bench that happened to be beside us and I, I waited it out and it went, and went away and sort of I went into the full panic mode. And it was almost, it was good in a way because he got to see me have uh, a panic attack in a sense or, or have uh, have an event. But it did turn out when I went and got my device interrogated that afternoon that I'd gone into polymorphic VT. <laughs> so it was kind of... It was kind of a weird, a weird outcome from the counselor, where you know he would he his advice was to try and push through these feelings of these safe, you know, to to break the safety behaviors by pushing through these awkward, you know, these these feelings I have. But in the same respect, in doing that, he proved that the feeling that I feel actually may be a cardiac arrest on the mm-hmm. way, <laughs> so it might actually be safer to just stop what I'm doing and and wait for it to to dissipate. So. Yeah, it was a weird outcome from that. And after that, I, I didn't really see anybody um, else. I just sort of, yeah, try to deal with it myself. So, so what happened next? And I think you've got one more, uh, or two, two more events, haven't you? To, uh... Yeah, so two more now. So after that one, so after it really, so after it started to take a little bit more notice and a little bit more care, I reduced my exercise activity just started to you know i'd started stopping i started these safety behaviors of stopping whenever i started to feel a little bit uneasy in the chest and so it had been 18 months gone by nothing nothing had happened everything seemed like it sort of got back to normal life i you know i didn't i didn't forget about it this time but it was definitely you know it was just starting to get routine and i had you know i was, I was almost not so much forgetting about my heart now but i was forgetting the feeling of having an event and I, an incident and my visa uh, in the UK had actually started to had expired so um, I had to go back to Australia to get my visa renewed because you can't get it renewed here in the UK and as I, when I went back to Australia my grandfather became unwell and it, it all happened really sudden so I was in Sydney with my mum and then we got the call that apparently the doctors said that we need to go there immediately because um, he's in hospital. And so we pretty much got on the next flight up to Brisbane to go see him. And I just got off the plane. I felt fine. Uh, I mean, we were, I guess, a little bit. I, I mean, I, you'd probably characterize it. I mean, we weren't calm because it wasn't enough. We, we knew we weren't going to a nice situation. And especially for her, you know, this was her dad. This is my grandfather. And I grew up with him and, you know, he he was, for all intents and purposes, my father because my mum went to university when I was a baby, so I was raised by him. But for her, I think it was just, you know, it was a lot more of a, a an emotional situation. And we got off the plane and she sort of rushed off ahead. She wanted to get out of the airport as quick as possible and get to the hospital as quick as possible. But, you know, I... I at that point, you know, I was still doing my safety behaviors where I still took it slow. I still made sure. So I wasn't rushing, even though I was distressed. I still, I just made sure I wasn't rushing. And so I got off the plane, walked up um, the stairs to get to the terminal. And as soon as I got to the top of the stairs with my suitcase, I felt, I felt myself go back into that, that feeling again. And I was like, oh God, here we go. Like I'm on, like I, I'm at an airport now. Like what am I going to do? So Again, I, I I just imagined if I walk slowly, I might be able to just 
ride this thing out and it will go away by itself. So I started to walk really slowly up the arm of the airport, up the arm of the terminal towards the gate, but it didn't go away. And when I, I, I just made it to the, to the front of the gate and I sort of just dropped my suitcase and I sat down on the floor and this passenger came up and asked me, you know, are you okay? And I sort of, I couldn't speak at that point. So I just sort of shook my head. Then I imagine my face probably must have looked really white and whatnot. So she she ran and got one of the attendants at the gate, and they came over and called the paramedics. And everybody knows there's the whole gate of everybody waiting to board a plane. So there's hundreds of people in this gate, and I'm just sort of sitting there. And paramedics turn up, and all the security turns up, and it's this big hoopla event. And then the the paramedics come along and they take off my jumper. So here I am, topless, naked, like you know, in, in front of three hundred people in an airport. And the the paramedic goes trying to put the ECG leads on, and he couldn't actually get them to stick with my chest hair. So he's there and he's starts. He's like, oh, "I'm gonna have to shave you," and I'm like, "Oh, great!" So here I am in front of three hundred people getting my chest hair shaved in an airport. <laughs> so it just it was one of those just really really weird experiences. But yeah, and so my my mum. So after that, it all happened. My mum called me on my phone, and I mean, it's great. It's quite funny. She probably hates that I tell this story, but the first thing she said when I picked up was, "Well, where where the f are you?" <laughs> and I was like, "Well, sorry to say, but you know, I, I had another event. I think I literally answered her. I said, I I died back at the airport. Is what I said to her. I I died back at the at the gate." And so she came. Like I think her reaction at the time was like, "This is how normal it's gotten in our family now." I think her reaction was, oh, "Not again." <laughs> <laughs> that was just a, it was just like, "Oh, oh God, like, here we are, gotta go." Again. So she came back, and yeah, and the paramedics looked after me for. They just did a quick checkup, and they couldn't see anything wrong after the fifteen minutes. And they just asked me if I'd like. They they did. They asked me if I'd like to go for observation, but it actually it turned out, I guess. You know, so my grandfather died that week, but you know, it sort of turned out oddly serendipitous that it happened while I was back in Australia because I had to get my visa renewed. So you know, it's quite a short window that I was in Australia, and that's when he passed away. So it was, it it all sort of worked out. I, you know, ultimately, I, I I do imagine the worst case scenario that week could have been that my mum could have lost her dad and her son in the same in the same few days span so that that you know that that definitely could have turned out a lot worse we actually also lost our dog so our dog died that week as well so that that one week she could have had her dog her dad and a son die on her which yeah probably well not probably but that wouldn't have been a great a great week for her no (laughs) you could say that What I really found interesting being in your group uh, on Facebook and going to the meetups is just how little I've had to, although, well, you know, not purposefully, but just how little I've actually given thought to the 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 bystander experience and you know what my mum goes through when these sort of things happen and, and what you know what 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 you're sort of what what are the people around you going through when you're having these because I, I guess I treat it quite lightly but to my mum it's probably not you know it's not it's not it's not a joke to her it's not as funny as it is to me (laughs) it's that you know it's not as funny to her as it is to me that i got a ambulance escort through a motorbike escort through central london she's thinking that i could have died thirteen thousand miles away from from home so yeah i think you know i think it's been really good being a part of the group and just 
sort of taking that perspective that I think, you know, everybody else goes through this, I think, a lot more than you actually do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's one of the things that's uh, a little bit underlooked so far in that they don't really get the the care and the help um, that they need afterwards. And hopefully we can we can do things to address that. I think being part of a, a group where they can chat through their experience helps to a certain degree, but some people do experience PTSD and maybe need professional help as well. But you know, which they which some of them can get through the group again thanks to the free counselling from SADS. If if you're li- listening and you are even a survivor or a, someone, a partner or someone who's done life saving on someone else, then if you are experiencing PTSD or a lot of anxiety, then perhaps uh, you should contact SADS UK and get some uh, free counselling. That's if you can't get it through your normal route in a timely manner, i.e. through your GP. Uh, and I know that's not always easy to get, to tell the truth, which is why we have this free counselling. Okay, okay so that, that was your last appropriate shock. And then there's another episode that you had, which is... Uh, slightly unusual and and possibly worrying for some people but i imagine it's quite a a rare occurrence could you explain a little more about it yeah so i mean so now i guess we're all caught up so we're up to my latest event however you want to however you want to call it so at this point i was well into my so every six months i was being i'm being seen by the Airfield uh, hospital transplant team um, and I'm getting routine assessments on whether or not I should be um, considered for the heart transplant list and a part of those routine checkups is uh, a full phys so they uh, do an MVO2 test or it might not be an exact MVO2 test it might it's basically a, a test they do on a treadmill and they put like a Darth Vader oxygen mask really tightly around your face so that they can control exactly how much oxygen you receive while you're doing this test and what they then test is how effective you breathe and how effective your heart handles exercise and previously for the last two or three times I'd actually stopped the test early because I'd started to feel that feeling and they actually really were almost angry or not angry but they were just really disappointed in in that they hadn't actually got a proper result from me yet because when you start this test you can't actually stop and restart it. So if once you stop, the test is over. They can't. It, your 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 future results will be affected by the sort of the, the the part where you stopped it. So you're only allowed to do it once, and once you stop it, they've got to take those results. And so they're a little bit disappointed that I hadn't actually been able to get through an entire ten minute period for their test to be effective or, or to be valid. So at that point, I've been playing tennis for a few months, just very light. Just I've been going to a social tennis thing just to get a little bit of exercise. And I was actually feeling quite, not fit, but I was feeling, you know, quite good. I was feeling like, okay, if, it, if, there's, any, if there's ever going to be a period of time where I'm going to, if there's ever going to be a test that I'm going to get this exercise thing done, it's going to be this time. And so I, sort of, I ate healthily that week. I'd had a salad and some sushi the night before. So I made sure that I was sort of, trying to be as healthy as I can in the lead up to it. But then started the started the test, jumped on the treadmill, and unfortunately, six minutes in, I, I got six minutes. I'm quite proud of that. But six minutes in, I felt 
the feeling um, come on. And what was different about this case is when they do these tests, they actually disable your ICD, so you don't have ICD protection. For everyone, or is it just for you? I think it might generally be for everybody. It's still probably a case-by-case, case, but I think the general advice is to turn it off because when you're exercising, there is always the, there's always the risk that your device will misinterpret your exercise rate as something that it needs to shock. It might have been just like it might have been for just for me in that I know, like I said earlier, my zones are set quite low. So, it you know when I when I actually doing heavy exercise, I probably will be peaking past what my zone is set. So that might just be for me. But yeah, so they turned the ICD off completely for the period, and, and I was a little bit worried about that. But they. You know, they put the external defibrillators. They already, so they pre-applied the external defibrillator pads on my chest. And they're like, don't worry, if anything happens, we'll shock you back with this defibrillator. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not the point at all. <laughs> like, I, I trust my ICD. I don't trust the uh, this defibrillator that you've just stuck on my chest. <laughs> like, if, if, you had, if I had an option of what, what should save my life, I'd, I'd choose my ICD. Yeah, that's one positive um, from all these experiences you you know your ICD works and you, you got that trust in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so he turned off my ICD and I was on the treadmill um, and running along six minutes in, I felt the feeling and it's just, I mean, I really wanted to continue. Like, so I told him, I was like, I really felt like, I just felt the feeling I really want to stop. And he was like, nope, nothing's on the ECG. And that was quite surprising. Apparently nothing showed any. So even though I felt the feeling, nothing had been shown on the ECG that indicated anything was about to go wrong. And the nurse even, you know, they didn't want me to stop because, I th and you know, and to their credit, I imagine they get quite a lot of unfit and unhealthy patients, which we are naturally in our situation, which we all are. And so they're probably used to people just wanting to stop early for those reasons. Um, so the nurse put a hand on my back to keep me on the treadmill instead of stepping off. But yeah, I can't, you know, it's it's hard to describe the dread that you feel when you go into that feeling. It can just, especially now, like I just, you know, it's like I, I like to sort of, well, not like to, but I, you know, I tell my friends and family, it's it's literally the feeling that like I could die in the next eight seconds. Like I've got eight seconds left to live. What do you do? Like what's the? That's really like that, that's the that's what it comes down to when I feel these feelings. Is you know, I've got eight seconds left to live. What do I do? So I sort of, you know, it no matter how much of willpower I wanted to push through it, I couldn't. So I was getting ready to stop. And then I just remember, all I remember then is the, the physiologist who was there monitoring the ECG slammed the emergency stop button on the treadmill, a big red button. And then he yelled out, I need some help in here. And then I sort of had a nice dream and had a nice warm, fuzzy, fuzzy feeling. And I remember seeing like, it was just, I just don't remember seeing anything. I just remember it being like a golden light and then woke up and, the physiologist was doing CPR compressions on my chest as I woke up. The nurse was doing oxygen intubation over my over my mouth, and there was a blue light flashing in the background. And there was about half a dozen other doctors and surgeons all standing around me. Some had looked like they'd just run straight in from a surgery or something. They had still had their gloves on and hands up as they were standing over me. So I was just like, "Oh, okay, yeah, I know," you know. And had, had, had you been shocked at that point when you, you said they? He was doing CPR on you. Had you been shocked or did you come back through the CPR? 
I know it's very unusual. Perhaps I think. I uh, yeah. I I I think I I imagine they shocked me. I but I never really asked or checked or yeah. I just. I mean yeah. I. Yeah, I never really even bothered. To, it's a good question. I've never thought about that until now. But yeah, I have to imagine that they, they either turned back on my ICD to for it to shock me, or they used the external defibrillators to shock me. Because one of the questions which you see every now and again is, if I've got an ICD and it fails, can someone use an external defibrillator on me? And the answer is yes, right. but that may have been an yeah. actual case where it's happened. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, if, if that puts anyone's mind at ease, like they they put the pads on me before I did the test and they they said there was no problems with using an external defibrillator with. So I guess, you know, if, if that helps anybody. But yeah, so I sort of woke up from that. My first thought was, yeah, they, they, there was this, the, one of the, the, the nurse who put a hand on my back. She was over talking to another doctor and she's like, it's so weird. He said that he felt a feeling before anything came up on the ECG. And I just thought, like, you know, I, I bloody told you so. Like That was the first thought I came to my head, which is, I told you so. I told you I had a feeling, and I told you I was about to die, and you didn't believe me. <laughs> but to his, I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, they, I understand their reasons for wanting to keep me on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that was a, that, and then, yeah, that was just a, I sort of got a, a I mean, <laughs> it's a little bit, uh, again, a little bit macabre, but I got a five-star treatment from the hospital because I guess they had realized that <laughs> they had, uh, probably they, they, they weren't 100% in the right there. So they put me up in um, one of their better suites for the, and I just did an observation uh, for the weekend mm-hmm. after that. Oh, but, glad they did. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things you, that was different from when you explained previous experiences, when you had the shock from your ICD, I don't recall you mentioning anything about the the time that you were out, but when you were out that time, you said you saw a light, didn't you? Or, and you had a nice dream and a warm, fuzzy feeling. Was, was, was that correct? Yeah so, yeah. so, I mean, the other, so the other times I passed out, the, Second one, like I said, I had this sort of segue of New York images and and sound effects, and the other the time when I was at my desk, I had the dream that my H person had, had written on the whiteboard my name three times. So I said, you know, I had well, had hadn't that actually life. happened then? No, no, not at all. Well, I thought that had happened. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. I don't know. So yeah, if, I, we don't have a whiteboard. <laughs> we don't have a, I don't know where that you know I don't know where that magically appeared from, but yeah, we don't we don't have a whiteboard, and it was actually the first thing when I woke up, I looked over like to where the whiteboard was in this dream, and there was no whiteboard there, and I was like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> could have could have sworn she wrote my name three times on a whiteboard, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was it was a really surreal feeling, but yeah, so that that was also I guess a, a vision slash dream, whatever you want to call it, but this time it was more I don't remember dreaming per se it was just a yeah like i said just a really warm fuzzy feeling i just remember i don't remember seeing light i just remember the color yellow like i don't you know i don't i don't necessarily feel like i saw light but it just felt yellow if i had to describe it i don't know how how or why i just say yellow yellow and warm and fuzzy so yeah that was a that was a weird a, a weird feeling to wake up to and, and 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 again waking up to that i don't know if they'd given me adrenaline when i was 
under, but they, I, I woke up feeling great. I, I, I could honestly have ran a marathon. I was like, just get me back on that treadmill. I'll finish your 10 minutes. <laughs> like, yeah, if you want, if you want, if you want your 10 minutes done, like, let's go. I'm ready. Let's do it. Get me back up there. But um, yeah, I felt really, really good when I woke up. <laughs> it's just, and it's, it's, it's weird, those feelings, because that's what leads to, you know, like that's what leads to almost the resentment of being kept in for observation because you're like, no, I feel great. Like, what are you doing? I feel like I could go outside and run around in circles. Like, why are you keeping me here for observation? <laughs> so, so you've gone through all of that, and that that was a couple of years ago now, wasn't it? Yeah. So I've actually now touched wood, been alive, or you know, been incident free for. The longest period I have in ten years. So it's been two years now since that. So what do you put that down yeah, to? Did they change any medications or your programming? So I don't think they changed my medications per se. Doctor Vanova previously put me on spironolactone, which is a, a water drug or a water pill, and she then recommended I go on a a drug called renolazine, which is is actually not to do with arrhythmias at all. It's a, a angina. Uh, medication that's supposed to help with angina feelings and I think the the idea behind that is just to help re- relieve some of those feelings you know to, to stop so many times when I think something's wrong just mentally but nothing I don't think that actually would have affected the functioning of my heart so for me it was just about really I really at that point I really cut back on exercise I really got I just stopped what I was doing exercise wise I stopped going for walks, stopped riding the Boris bikes, just sort of, you know, I took the, the transplant doctor's advice after that incident was don't exercise. So I guess I sort of attribute it to just having to just not, not exercising, I think is how, is what I'd attribute to it. And it is one of those awkward things where I'm, you know, I'm starting to get a little bit restless and I've been getting a little bit restless now for a couple of, for the last year or so. And I've really wanted to go to a gym and, you know, it, it's definitely important. It's also important in the transplant process to be as fit and healthy as you can be because you got, you know, you got to be a certain standard to be able to survive an operation for a heart transplant and survive the the process afterwards. So I do want to go to a gym, and it's this sort of it's it's this existential dilemma that I guess I have is, you know, do I if I risk going to the gym and exercising it may ultimately lead to my death. <laughs> like that's, you know, so is it, is it worth, is it worth exercising knowing that I literally might die because of it? And so it's just, a, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough mental it's a real conundrum. Problem is, is it, are yeah. there no specialist cardiac rehab people that can help you with that? Find, find, find yeah. your optimal level. Yes, they did help me with that again at Charing Cross Hospital. They're really good. They've got a team that handles that, and they've got a cardiac rehab class for people with heart conditions. They do a rehab with them as well. And I did join that for quite a while, for about six months after. And they're the they're the ones that also had this counselor, specialized counselor in their team as well. And they did a a beep test, an exercise beep test with me, just to get some indication on my levels and my limits and. They gave me a sort of restriction of don't walk more than three kilometers per hour, put like speed, uh, and don't ride a bike more than five kilometers per hour speed. So, which is quite slow, as you, as you imagine. I think everyone, everybody walks a little bit faster than three kilometers an hour. That's quite quite a slow speed. Mm. Um, 
but yes, uh, they did those tests. And, and if I did want to get back into it, it probably would be the best to go back to Charing Cross Hospital and see if I could get into those courses. But I do also recognize that those courses have limited spaces. And, you know, I'd hate to think I was taking someone's spot who had just had a cardiac arrest and maybe was, you know, not as uh, not as confident in their abilities as I am perhaps to... So, you know, I, I guess I appreciate that they're probably quite busy and if they don't have the spaces, then it'll be up to me to sort my own uh, exercise out. But the other downside to it as well is that just actually finding a gym membership uh, has been quite the challenge. So there's a couple of gyms now I've approached and every time I've told them that I have a health condition and then they might need to watch out, they've been like, okay, well, we need to get your doctor and your cardiologist to sign off on it. And they wanted like a medical certificate before they would let me sign up. And every time I went to my doctor or my cardiologist, they would just say no. And so I, I couldn't really, uh, couldn't really provide them with the right documentation. So I think my only option now is to probably hire my own personal physical trainer or something to run me through some light drills, or just yeah, try some light. Try some other forms of light exercising myself as well, maybe. I mean, there are plenty of alternatives. You don't have to go to the be a, a, a gym bunny or whatever. You, you, there are yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty of ways. You save yourself plenty of money as well by not going to one. So one of the reasons, actually, I wanted to talk to you, apart from going through all your history, is, is you always seem to have a sort of quite a positive attitude considering what's actually happened through the last 10 years, and in particular... You've done the number of posts in the group about your travel exploits because you haven't you haven't let it sort of get in your way. To I know you've mentioned that you had some sort of safety behaviours, but you you have still managed to pack plenty into your life as well as the, the cardiac events, haven't you? Yeah, well, that's I mean that's always been super important to me. I think you know I, I definitely have these safety behaviours, but. In, in my mind, at least, you know, where where I do these safety behaviors isn't affected by the location. It's, you know, it, it, I'm going to stop every 500, you know, if I'm going to stop every 500 meters, in my mind, it makes no difference if I'm in London or if I'm in Paris, you know, it's, I'm not gonna, it, it's not gonna change it. So why not? Why not go to Paris? I'm still going to have this condition, I'm still going to have to stop every couple of hundred meters but just you know why not go and enjoy paris while i can or why not go and enjoy america or you know the rest of europe it's yeah i think for me i've sort of the way i look at my condition is that it's always going to be there it's not like you know it's not it's not going to go away so it's going to follow me no matter where i go so why sit here in london and not go and experience these things when I could go and experience all these other places and I'm still still going to have the condition. I can't, you know, leaving London isn't going to make the condition worse and coming back to London isn't magically going to make the condition any better. So just have to, yeah, just continue on and get out and do what you want to do and have fun and see the world and, yeah. so You never know, leaving London yeah. might make it better because you said you've, been, yeah, exactly. you've had a lot of shocks, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, London doesn't have a great track record. So, you know, even to be, I did think that of Australia at the time. I remember when I went back for my visa, I was like, oh, the fresh air here is amazing. Like, I, haven't, I, I hadn't tasted fresh air 
like I had when I went back to Australia in so long. <laughs> you know, you, you really you really don't realize just how, you know, like it did shock me the first time I came to London. About after a month or so, I started to have black snot. And you kind of like where like this is this isn't normal like why you know it's just just actually from catching the tube every day to work every morning and like just the amount of soot and dirt and grime that we must be breathing in when we're on the tube isn't pleasant to think about so I did think that the fresh air might have done me some good but then I ended up having a another shock at the airport anyway but but yeah you know it's like yeah it's just. It's just one of the things, I guess, I, I try to, and being young as well, you know, it's just, well, you know, I like to call myself young. I like to think I'm selfish young, but, you know, there's still a long road to go yet, and I can't give up yet. Absolutely. <laughs> I guess, so, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah, like, like I said, I'm going gonna, gonna to have it forever. It's not going to get any better. So, you know, why not get out there and, do what I can now before it does get any worse. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd hate to be in a situation where I get to the point where I need a transplant and then I can no longer, and then, you know, God forbid anything happens that I can, like, it's literally physically impossible for me then to go out and do any of this stuff and then regret that I didn't do it when I had the chance. So, mm-hmm. yeah, for me, it's just about, yeah. Yeah, and I think I definitely realize that it's not for everybody, but this is, again, where I attribute just the, the whole idea of the forgetting package it away is that it really does let me do these really you know talking to you and talking to other people like oh, why'd you do that you got a heart condition like you know why why did you go skiing in the french alps why did you go zip lining down and uh, you know, part of my response is because i wanted to but part of it is also because i forgot i had a heart condition <laughs> is, is the other one you know so because i didn't I, I didn't even think about my heart condition until i got up the top of the mountain and then i was like well there's only one way to go now so I just had to end up skiing down. Same with the, uh, I went down the zip line in Las Vegas and I didn't even think about my heart condition until I got to the actual harness and I was harnessed into the zip line and I started to feel a little bit elevated, a little bit funny. And I was like, well, there's only one way to go now. <laughs> I can't, I can't really back out now. I just got to go down the zip line and just, you know, hope for the best. Mm-hmm. But, um, Yes, I think that's definitely helped. I think, I think yeah, pro- I, possibly I, the more you do as well, the the less you think about it as well. You don't, you don't want to be trapped exactly, trapped yeah. in your in a, a cocooned world, really, do you? Yeah, definitely. I think you know the the more you do start to go out and just bite the bullet and go and do what might seem scary, you know, almost to you know to my counselor's credit, you know, just thinking now, yeah, I have. have how he was sort of trying to get me off the safety behaviors of stopping that same mechanic of just keep pushing it and pushing it has also helped me or has helped me sort of get over my fears and allowed me to travel. Cause you know, you go, you go to Paris for a weekend and nothing happens. You go to the French, you go to, you know, you go to the French Alps and nothing happens. You go to Vegas and nothing happens. And so when you come up to your next destination, you're a little more inclined to believe nothing is going to happen than what you may have previously thought. So yeah, just, I think just getting out and doing it and, you know, that's, you know, Nike, Nike commercial, just mm-hmm. do it. In, in um, small steps, perhaps though, rather than sort of going straight to the top of that mountain, maybe like you've done to go just do a, a short city break or something like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think, 
it's and, and yeah, I guess I'm fortunate enough to be in a job that does require those short city breaks. So, you know, while 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 I like to think those are big steps, or while it might seem like those are big steps, what happened before that French Alps was about three or four trips to Cannes to. Switzerland to just other little places that weren't very stressful on the heart at all. You know, they were very chill, just walking around the city, taking it in, exploring. You know, so they they weren't they weren't extreme like they weren't extreme in any sense of the word. But yeah, those small steps of just going to those cities and realizing that after four or five times, you know what, nothing happened. Like no, you know, and it's just that idea of yeah, like it, it's if it's gonna happen, it's just gonna happen anywhere. So um, and yeah, might as well just go and be somewhere that's fun. You might get to experience the hospital food in different countries. You never know. Yeah, well, that's it. You might yeah. be able to write a guidebook <laughs> on it. <laughs> Can you imagine that would just be? Uh, that's quite a unique uh, hospital hospital foods of the yeah. world. Yeah, I like it. Sponsored by Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. One of the posts that you did in the in the group uh, a while back and I don't know if you actually did it but you were going to go to Japan and you were inquiring about eating the fugu I don't know if that's how you pronounce it oh, fly yes, fish, yeah. which is uh, poisonous in its own right if it's not prepared correctly did you ever do that yeah no so I went to Japan and I, I actually did seek it out but I couldn't find any within sort of reasonable area and reasonable price actually of what we were looking for so I was I resigned to that, but we did go. Some might say it's pushing so, pushing the death wish a little bit too far. <laughs> yeah, just just a little bit too far. But but on, on the other side, I still I guess got that extreme fix where they've got a, a an, an experience over there called Mari Kart, which I guess I have to point out for their for their sake. They like to tell everybody you know they're not affiliated with Mario at all. They're not affiliated with Nintendo at all. But basically, it's if you know the video game Mario Kart by Nintendo, it's a racing game where you drive go-karts around and you can throw things at each other. And in Japan, they have an experience where you can actually get a red go-kart just like the video game and drive through the streets of Tokyo. And so we decided to do that. And so here I am in Tokyo on a go-kart next to massive lorries and you know trucks where you're just like they can't see me down here i'm in a go-kart and the, the wheel is bigger than i am <laughs> and they're just sort of driving past and you're just cruising at 100 kilometers an hour in a go-kart it's just that was that was a wild experience so i still got my little bit of a, a little bit of an extreme kick out of, during my trip that, that was my fugu was uh, just driving next to a lorry in a go-kart <laughs> <laughs> so one thing i've got to say after all your experiences and you're sort of pushing the limits, are you are you scared of dying or are you not scared of dying? No, I mean this. Is, yeah, I, I think this is, it's a common question for for people in acquisition. I mean, I'm definitely scared of dying. Um, I don't want to die. I don't believe in the afterlife. You know, so I, I like it, it, the way I treat it. You know, this is our one life. This is you know, once we die, we die. That's it. And I definitely don't want that to happen. <laughs> I'm definitely dreading the day it happens. And yeah, I think that, you know, I think that's just more of a personal. It's not so much. I don't definitely know. Like it, it hasn't changed. I don't fear dying because of my heart condition. That's, that's probably the, the one caveat I'd do to it. You know, I, I, I feared dying before I had, I even knew I had this heart condition. Just, yeah. You know, I think what I, sort of comes to grips with though is that 
I guess you know I I I I I guess I just you know I trust my ICD. I trust the team here in London that's looking after me. I I I highly doubt any of the activities I do overseas are going to lead to my instant death. So I you know like I mean that's it's, it's a horrible way to look at it, but I feel like you know it, if anything did go wrong, I'd still have at least some time when I came back to you know get it sorted and get it treated and and again just sort of you know forgetting about things for a little bit as well helps so yeah but i definitely fear dying and it's not a it's not a fun quote like sort of thing to think of or look forward to and but yeah i guess you just you can't let that stop you everyone's gonna everyone's gonna die everyone yeah it's a, everybody's gotta die everybody's gotta do it it's it's not it's, I don't, like I don't want to. If the, if if everyone if anyone ever said to the option to drink this pill and you won't die, I'll definitely take the uh, take the potion. But yeah, no, I think you just got to get over that and keep on keeping on. Okay, I think we're coming to the end now. And you're as I mentioned at the beginning, you're probably the youngest survivor that I've spoken to so far on the podcast, and your yours is a. Uh, probably quite extreme in the number of shocks that you've experienced, but do you think you could uh, relay any advice to someone who's perhaps in a similar situation as yourself, who's in maybe in their twenties or whatever, and have just had a cardiac arrest. Have you got any advice gained over the last 10 years that you can help them help allay any fears they may have about the future? Yeah, I, I guess like what I'd tell anybody and probably tell myself, you know, back, you know, at that age, like, it is scary. Like, I can't, I'm not going to, like, sugarcoat it to you. The whole, everything about this situation, everything about it is scary. And I don't feel, I don't think any less of anybody who gives into that fear or, you know, doesn't handle that fear in a way that I've handled it. But, you know, recognize, like, just, you know, like, recognize within yourself it is scary, but take those risks. Take, you know, don't, don't let that cage you into a into a box. You know, just I, I mean, yeah, getting them to sound like a Nike commercial, but just do it. Just you know, just move to Australia, move to move to America, move to London. You know, just don't just do just do it. You've got one life, and we've got a, a little bit more complicated life now than what other people have. But you've got to just live it how you want to live it. Absolutely, and I uh, totally agree with that. Obviously, with some caveats that don't do anything totally stupid, but we we, <laughs> sure. we have got one life, and uh, it, it it would be really easy just uh, if you have an event like this, and then just uh, cuss it yourself and let other people put, wrap you in cotton warm bubble wrap and just not do anything and don't live that life that you've uh, been fortunate enough to have another go at. So. Uh, get out there and do it like just like jamie's and i take my hat off to you for having the the balls as it were to and confidence and guts to carry on doing things and i know you've got new avenues that you want to explore in the future which uh, sound exciting so i thank you very much for this this really uh great conversation it's been a real insight into a young person or young survivor's life and how you can sort of come through it the other side, really. So thank you very much, Jamie. Yeah, I hope I hope someone out there has taken some sort of value from this, and I hope it helps. I'm sure it will. So thanks very much, and we'll speak again soon. Bye. 
Yeah, thank you. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast, and I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website southerncardiacarrestuk.org. And you can find us by Googling Southern Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider, such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest, on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe, and I'll speak to you next time. Bye.